You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries. All right, tonight, our Father who art in heaven. Why don't you put the, never mind, I have the thing. Why don't you read this with me, the Lord's Prayer. We're studying the Lord's Prayer this semester. Quote, our Father who art in heaven, read it with me out loud. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So it has a little tagline on the end. We'll talk about that later on this semester. That end part isn't in all the manuscripts. It's uncertain whether it was original. Interesting little tidbit there for you. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Most of you know that, I assume. So there's Lord's Prayer. We talked last week. Jesus started off. He said what not to do. Um, if you want to hear some of that stuff, you can talk to me. Um, the very first thing Jesus uh, engaged, at least in Luke's version, is here's what not to do. Here's how not to pray. And so we talked about a bit. Uh, tonight we're going to start in, in earnest, if you will, on the first few words. Um, on our Father in heaven. That is tonight. Um, in college, I had a friend who I had a discussion with. She was an atheist, sort of. and uh, She didn't really understand prayer. She said something like, why would you just waste a bunch of hours, this is almost a quote, why would you waste a bunch of hours doing nothing, praying, doing nothing, when you could instead be out in the world actually helping people, making a difference, doing something rather than nothing. That was her uh, critique, that was her assessment of what prayer was, which in one sense is a reasonable thing, an understandable thing. If you pray for a little bit of time, you're sitting there, or you're kneeling there, or you're standing there, or whatever, right? You're not doing anything. And her concern wasn't that you're praying to a, a deity that doesn't exist. She kind of didn't believe in God. She was actually in a moment concerned that you're not helping anybody. <laughs> Why don't you take those hours and do something, you know, worth something? At the time, I wasn't 100% on, uh, sure on how to actually respond to that. Uh, but uh, it's a reasonable response. I wonder, is that reaction, uh, do you relate to that? Does, your, does the confusion of prayer, about prayer, and your experience of it, or lack thereof, uh, does that strike a chord in your soul when you think about prayer? Why do I pray? Um, or do you even with Jesus' disciples have something of a considerable confusion? I, potentially, Jesus' disciples were a bit desperate when they asked, how do, I, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. There's a possibility. I've never really... Uh, you know, imagine them asking it this way. There's a possibility they were a little desperate. How? John taught his disciples. John the Baptist taught his disciples. Teach us to pray. How do you pray? How do you do it? And I'll say right away, I'm often in that mode at the beginning of prayers especially of, you know, how do I pray? I'm sitting here. I often pray on my knees when I'm, I'm alone. I would encourage posture actually does affect your prayer life. And sometimes I'm frustrated. I struggle. How do I, what do I say? I'm just saying things. How do I do this? That happens for me. And it is okay. It's right to acknowledge that prayer is, in fact, this mysterious thing. There is a mystery to prayer. Um, it's also true to say that prayer is powerful. There's this lifeline, uh, direct connection, uh, so to speak, to the creator of the heavens, the creator of space, time, and matter, right? Um, but... I would, I would uh, mostly argue and, and warn that most of how we understand to pray comes from simply that which we've seen, which may be good or bad, but for most of us, I think the majority, and this is my experience and 
countless people that have shared. It's mostly just what you've seen. It's what you've grown up with. However you pray is however you've seen people pray. And that may be a good or bad thing, but what we want to do this whole semester is take this central thing, as I tried to stress a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, this crazy central thing in the Christian life, which is prayer, communion, discussion, requests, all these things. The Lord's Prayer is full of petitions that we're going to be talking about in the coming couple of weeks. It's full of ask, 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 ask. And we're going to take and remold. I want to ask God to remold. I'm actually praying for you guys for this. Your heart and soul, your mind of what does it mean to pray? And I am just blown away by the fact that Jesus says, like this, here's how you do it. There could be perhaps virtually nothing more important for us to get right. So we start off with an address. Crucial to prayer is that we must know who we are and to whom we are praying. This is absolutely crucial. We must know who we are and to whom we are addressing. Jesus starts here. The words is not just an introductory to the prayer, an introduction to the prayer. When Jesus, it's not just, dear God, comma, and then you get to the good stuff. It actually is important that we understand the address that Jesus tells us. Here's how you start. Here's what you say. Here's how you think. And so what I want to do here is double click a little bit on this address. We're only going to be talking about our Father in Heaven uh, tonight. And there is a wealth of information on how to think about what it means to pray to God. So first, to whom we pray? We're going to take it in reverse order. To whom do we pray? It's easy just to say God, but what Jesus says is our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who's in heaven. What does that mean? When Jesus qualifies the person we're addressing, he specifically says our Father in heaven heaven. What does he mean? Why would he use that word? I have two big categories. These are big, big categories that we're not going to spend much time on. Two big ones. Uh, Praying to God who is in heaven means one thing. It means that God is holy other. H-O-L-Y other. He's utterly different than who we are. He dwells up in heaven. So Isaiah 6 is one of the most uh, has been one of the most impactful, very, very important verse in the scriptures. Isaiah has this vision of God, and he describes it like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is the vision he's describing. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of a robe symbolizes uh, 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 kingship, symbolizes uh, glory, royalty. It filled the entire temple. This huge structure was just filled with his robes. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew to protect themselves, is what that was for, from the glory. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations, these aren't uh, beings, by the way, that are little flying naked babies shooting you know, arrows into people's hearts. These are huge creatures such that, he goes on, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This terrifying experience is going on. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So this is an important start. When Jesus says, pray to your Father who is in heaven, Jesus wants us to start to get a picture of this absolutely transcendent God. Being through which when Isaiah's reaction, when he sees him, even in a vision, by the way, his reaction is to want to die. Woe is me is this really dark sort of declaration of I just want to die. You feel absolutely terrible. Right? It's not the sort of thing we think of when we come into a worship setting, so to speak, and the lights are dim and, and the music is just wonderful and your, your heart feels good and you leave feeling, quote unquote, encouraged, right? And your hands are up. I'm not mocking any of this necessarily, although sometimes I do mock that. But you're just feeling good, right? You just feel good. How was church this morning? Oh, man, it was just so good. Well, Isaiah's description when he met the Lord was, I want to die. I literally want to die right now. I feel absolutely terrible. Why? What kind of description is that is of Jesus? Jesus is probably the one, by the way, who has this robe filling the temple. It's not just the Lord. It's probably Jesus. The reason is, quote, at the end of the verse, my eyes have seen the king. That's the reason. You know, I, I found, found religion, some people say, right? Do you find religion? Find Jesus? Yeah, he's just great. Well, Isaiah's, yeah, I found him and I wanted to die and flee from his presence. And then as the story goes on, this incredible thing is this angel comes and touches the thing to his lips and removes his guilt. He's actually able to stand up and speak. This is this absolutely terrifying experience. That's his experience of the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Uh, say, our Father who art in heaven. That's Isaiah's description of what it means for God to be in heaven. Terrifying. He's this holy other kind of being. And this is the only description, by the way, in the, script, uh, in the Bible that says three words in a row describing who God is. It never says he's love, love, love. It never says he's peace, peace, peace. It says he's holy, holy, holy. There's this ultimate sense in which you, when you describe the Lord, he is holy. And Isaiah's reaction was terror and guilt and shame. 1 Timothy 6.16. Oops. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Can't even approach him. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is very much different than us, the scriptures say. I just want to uh, draw your attention to that. It's difficult to pass over such a thing. Um, this is a radically different experience than what most of, uh, I would venture to say, most of our generation has grown up in church hearing. It certainly was different than mine. His, he is so different that to be in his presence is abject terror. Pray to the God who is in heaven. That's when, one thing, central thing that Jesus means when he says, pray to him in the heaven. So these aren't supposed to just be words. You don't just rattle through this verse or this uh this prayer, your mind is meant to be full and meditating upon the truth of who God actually is. And only in that light, only in actual light, in the actual knowledge of the king and creator of all things, do you have an actual uh, accurate understanding of who you are. It won't happen any other way. 
Every other way, you're going to be high and exalted and lifted up in your own mind. You're going to think higher than yourself. Not Isaiah. So God is holy other. God is in the heaven. Another thing it means, God is wholly capable. Bit of a pun there. Spelled differently. He's wholly capable. Thank you. He is sovereign, is the word. I hit this very briefly last week. He's in heaven. He's able to do in power whatever he wills. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. Trying to go backwards on my screens. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's in the heavens and he does what he pleases. Daniel 4 says this. This is uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, actually, after he made him for however long, years long, he was a crazy person. If you ever familiar with that verse, he went quite literally insane. And then God granted him his sanity, and he says this about God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can question God. Everybody on the face of the globe is accounted as nothing. Another verse says they're like the, the flakes and the scales, the back of the scales of the lizard, just dust. You add them up, they account to absolutely nothing. God is, one way to describe this, he has absolute freedom. None can stay his hand. None can question what have you done in an accusatory sense. You can speak to God about why he's done such and such. Nobody can legitimately ask him, why have you done that? That's wrong. Very, very briefly, God is omnipresent. So these kind of descriptions, when we think of the word heaven, and when you want to ask the Lord to fill your mind with truth when you're addressing him, uh, these are the kind of ideas from the scriptures that you want. It's not that he's literally away somewhere, right, up in heaven, even though that sounds like the language. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. The scriptures clearly teach. You might say, someone has said, it's not as if he's a different place, but on a different plane God dwells in a different sort of reality than us. He's up and he's high and lifted up. Uh, he is in heaven. So, that's one. Our Father who's in heaven. That's a nugget. And, man, it's hard to skip over that. But it's really important that we start there. If you do not have a conception, I'll just say it this way, you must seek a, uh, a proper filter in your mind and in your heart you both start to increase in your understanding of this terrifying, sovereign, omnipotent, holy God that is not like you. He's way above you. You're accounted as nothing before him. You must seek that or you will not pray correctly. Jesus commands it. This is how we should pray. Furthermore, as we move into what it means for him to be a father, it won't make sense. It won't be great. So he's also a father, our father in heaven. He's in heaven and he's a father. God being a father, I thought I would say this since we are handed out the gender thing, doesn't mean he has a gender or a sex per se. God doesn't have a body, right? He isn't a man as we would think of it because of the word father. Um, if you want to talk about that, I, I would very much like to. Uh, but there is an eternal principle of fatherhood. Have you ever thought about this? Why do we have such things as mothers and fathers uh, and sons and daughters? Why, why do we talk that way? It's because God has eternally been a father. 
Pray to your Father who is in heaven. He's the eternal source. He's the eternal begetter of all life. This is why it matters. This is just a very short parenthesis, but this is why it matters that we have biblical God-centered distinctions about thinking about sex and gender because he's given them. Male and female, he created them. It's not just a thing he said. It's not just arbitrary. God just decided, nah, nah, male and female and whatever. He's a father. This is who he is. So he's not only sovereign. He's not only high and lifted up, even though he is. If he were only that, we would be like Isaiah in our sin. We would be, woe is me, I want to die. He's tender and caring. He's near to those who call on him. This high and lifted up one in which Isaiah comes before and is terrified. He's near also, Jesus says. He's a father. He not knows how many sparrows are falling to the ground and how many hairs are currently clinging to your head. He knows those things, right? He knows exactly how many hairs. If you just lost one, he, his number just went down, right? He knows that information. He's sovereign. He's absolutely fully exhaust, have full, full exhaustive knowledge of absolutely everything, but he cares. Right? A super-duper computer might be able to keep track of some things about you or about your siblings, let's say. I don't think anybody has kids here, but maybe. Uh, I'll say this. A super, you know, some supercomputer could keep track of all sorts of information about my kids. The computer won't care and love my boys I, as I do as their father. He cares about you. In a word, one of the words that I really like, he is imminent. He is near. Now just stop for a second. Don't take this for granted. I don't say that to the other one. I don't think we're in as much danger of taking God's absolutely overwhelming presence for granted. I don't think so. Maybe some of you. I do think we take the fact that he's a father for granted. We're, we're used to praying the beginning of prayers. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for such and such and blah, blah, blah. And Father, thank you. And Father, 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 about 30 times, right? This, this, this um, it's an um word to us. Don't take the fact that Jesus is commanding us and says, here's how you'll address this being whom Isaiah is terrified of, our father. This father relationship, this reality as addressing him as a father, uh, is not present in most, if any, of the rest of the world religions. The Islamic conception of God, for instance, does not have addressing God as a loving, tender, caring father. It doesn't have that. You might find some more liberal uh, Islamic or more liberal Muslims that would find some places that they would argue that he's a father as well. But it's not even anywhere near close to the way that the scriptures, the New Testament, the Bible describe our God as a father. We're supposed to come to him as this father. The Islamic conception does have him as sovereign and absolutely powerful, absolutely in control. Right? We're supposed to submit before this power. It clearly has that. There's a lot of similarities in a very real sense between the biblical description of God and the Islamic description of God. But it doesn't say, Lord, Abba, Father, when Jesus prays in the garden. Something along the lines of Daddy, right? Abba, Father. It doesn't have that. Don't take this for granted. This is super unique. And he's a perfect father. There's a slight parenthesis as well. None of us have perfect fathers. Therefore, and some of you have really bad fathers. Some of you have had really no virtually father whatsoever in your past. He either literally was absent, um, left when you were at some point, or 
essentially absent and just virtually never talked, didn't do any kind of loving and leading. So our conception of what it means to love our God as a father is very, very broken. It's very difficult to have that perfect conception of that. Uh, our Heavenly Father has none of those things. But that still matters because we feel, especially those of you who feel the nature of lacking a good father, the problem that that is. It's a big deal, right? It's not a small thing that your father fails or failed in certain ways or isn't around. That's a really big deal. Our father never leaves us. Our father always provides for us. And this is who we're supposed to think of him as, as a father. This is the address. Just stop and think about this for a second. This is the address we're given to address our God in prayers. A.W. Pink says this, to sum these things up. <clears throat> if the words our father inspire confidence and love as they ought, then the words in heaven should fill us with humility and awe. These are the two things that should ever occupy our minds and engage our hearts. The first without the second tends towards unholy familiarity. Hey man, how's it going? You know, bro, just hang in. Tends towards unholy familiarity. The second without the first produces coldness and dread, perhaps like Isaiah. Combining them together, we are preserved from both evils, and a suitable balance is wrought and maintained. I must uh, As we duly contemplate both the mercy and the might of God, the unfathomable love and his immeasurable loftiness. This is the balance Jesus wants us to have in our hearts and our heads. So, question for your some reflection of yourself personally, which do you lack most in your address to the Lord and consequently because of your prayers, your actual relationship with him? Do you have a, a grand awe of his immeasurable loftiness? You love the sovereignty and power and might and he could obliterate all things if he wanted. Do you have a grand view of that but lack the intimacy of him as a loving, caring father or vice versa? Do you have an astonishment for how great his love is? You love to talk about the loving tenderness of God, but you really have issues or have virtually no category in your heart for his, for his, uh, uh, to, to fear him, that you would be uh, terrified of him in one sense if you were to stand before him without Jesus. Where do you land? Where does your heart tend towards? Because you tend towards one or the other. None of us have this perfect balance that uh, Pink describes in our heads and hearts. It's an important question. If you're going to be addressing him, I think it's right. We must address him. We must know who we are. We must know who he is. Okay, so a few closing things. <clears throat> who prays? This is very similar. This just follows from our father. I just uh, split it off. Who are we as prayers? Who are we? We must understand this. We are adopted children in a family. That's one way to put it. Our father. We are adopted children in a family. To address God as father means that we are his children, obviously, but we are children of God by adoption. This is crucial. This is also known as the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries, where all our event audio, panel discussions, and sermons are hosted. For more details, visit equipcampusministries.org. 
Equip Campus Ministries exists to equip college students to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that, in all things, all people might find joy in displaying the greatness of God's glory.